0: Friends, ladies and gentlemen, a formal welcome to our second session of This Can Happen. So, as you saw last week, this course is all about a Jewish belief, or the Jewish belief, in a better future. Today we speak about the next level of our future vision. So we'll get there in a moment, but first a story. They tell a story about Yankel. Yankel, our friend, in this version of Yankel, you know, Yankel is always our uh, favorite go-to character. This version of Yankel happened to be a Jewish atheist. Born Jewish, but an atheist. So one day he decides to commune with nature. He decides to go out into the forest and to meditate on the absolute certainty that there's nothing beyond him. This is what he was meditating on um, on the certainty that that's it, it, it is what it is, and that's it. So he's out there in the forest, and out of nowhere, sneaks up upon him a grizzly bear. Now, if I have my my uh, science and ecology mixed up, because grizzly bears couldn't be in that. For- don't worry about. Don't worry about it. Let's. We're just going to go with it. All right. So he's there in the forest, and there's a grizzly bear, and the grizzly bear raises his paws. As to attack, God forbid, Yankel, right there sitting vulnerably, you know, meditating on whatever he's meditating on. And upon seeing the grizzly bear, Yankel, our atheist, looks heavenward and says, God, save me, upon which everything freezes. The whole scene freezes. Not a tree, not a leaf rustling, not a bird chirping, not a cloud. Blowing in the wind, everything freezes. And a light opens up as if through an aperture in the clouds, a light shines through. And a voice from heaven booms out and says, "Yankel, you suddenly believe in me? You're suddenly calling upon my help and salvation? Where have you been lately? And Yankel says, you know what, God? You're right. I cannot honestly say, and I cannot, it's not right for me to ask for your help, to pretend like I'm a believer, to call me as one of your faithful, right? I am not ready for that type of commitment, but do me a favor. Make the bear a believer. And so God says, your wish is my command. The aperture closes and nature resumes. The bear immediately puts down his paws and he puts them together as if in his own meditation, and Yankel breathes a sigh of relief until he hears the bear say, Baruch Hashem, Melech Hamotzi Lechem Min HaAretz. There we go. All right, with the rim shot. Okay, yeah, that was the end of the joke. Right, that's a blessing before we eat. Okay, all right. I'm sure I didn't need to explain it just in case. I want to cover all the bases. Okay, friends. Tonight, we have a spectacular class. And the job, your job is going to be <coughs> more than just, you know, uh, joining with me on this journey is figuring out the connection between the, the joke and the class. And when you know it, you'll let me know so that we can really bring everything together. So today's class comes on the heels of last week's session. Last week, we spoke about the Jewish notion, the Jewish take on the, quote, end of days. And we saw how unlike some religions or cult beliefs, the Jewish version of the end of days is not actually so scary or gloomy at all. In fact, it's downright awesome. The end of days, known as the Messianic era or Mashiach in Hebrew, is marked by a huge upgrade to the human condition, to life as we know it. No poverty, no famine, no illness, no hostility, no war, no violence. I think we can all get behind that. Now, I haven't polled everybody on planet Earth, but I think Mashiach is something that most of us, I would hope all of us, right, can support and get behind. Now, we also saw last week how though more than ever, the world is getting closer to these messianic ideals. Not that things are perfect. No, things are not perfect, far from it. But we're making a lot of progress. Progress that 100 years ago, 50 years ago, even 20 years ago, would, in some areas that we spoke about last week, would have seemed impossible. Today, it's possible progress is being made in an incredible way. And so based on our previous conversation you are hopefully feeling a little bit more optimistic about things, a little bit more positive about the future, and hopefully you have a a bit of a better understanding about what exactly the Messianic era is all about. And that's good, but not so fast, because tonight we're going to discover a whole, whole new angle on this Messianic era stuff. You see, up until now, we've only presented one side of the messianic coin, so to speak. Up until now, we've only been speaking about the physical benefits of Mashiach a time of peace, material prosperity, etc. These are all the physical blessings, the material blessings. But today, in this class, we're going to explore a different side the spiritual side of Mashiach. What is the Jewish version of the future? From a spiritual perspective, and why is it relevant to us today? These are the questions we will explore tonight. So if last week was about the physical promise of Mashiach, of the Messianic era, tonight is about the spiritual promise of the Messianic era. And as we go through tonight's lesson, we're going to see how the two are actually linked. But I don't want to get ahead of myself too much. Okay, so let's jump into our conversation. Um, It's important to note that despite what we learned last week, Mashiach, the Messianic era, is much more than unlimited ice cream and lollipops. Now, the reason why I say ice cream and lollipops is because, well, number one, who doesn't like ice cream and lollipops? Number two, Maimonides did mention, if you recall from last week, that the world would be filled with physical delights. Remember he said that? Yeah? And so kids are told... And I have been privy to this as well. Kids sometimes are told that you know what mashiach is. Mashiach is candy will be growing on trees, because my says that all adonim, all pleasures, all worldly delights will be as, as available as the dust. So, what's one way to express that to a child? Candy growing on trees. Maybe even money growing on trees. But right, all physical delights, all physical pleasures will be will be ever available. But the Messianic era, as we'll see tonight, is much more than just unlimited physical delights. It's a time marked by profound spiritual change. So what I want to do is jump into the text. We have a lot to learn tonight. We have a tremendous amount of material to to study, a lot of which I believe will be new information for many of us. Also, tonight, our conversation is, kind of going to, is going to weave through different ideas. And I ask you to halt cup. Halt cup means to follow with me as, we, as I take you on this journey through this progression to understand the spiritual side of the Messianic era. We're going to begin with text number one. I'm getting my text, my PDF, on my computer ready to share. If you have a book, and I think most of you, the vast, vast majority of you, already should have received your book in the mail. If not, please let me know, um, and I'll track it. Uh, but it's, you either should have received it, or it's coming imminently, any, any day now, right? Uh, it's kind of, and and, and it's, it's not a matter of faith or belief. It's a matter of the tracking number. So let's jump into text number one, and you can follow along with me Either way. All right, let me share my screen. Here we go. Okay, let's ask Jerry. Jerry, please read text number one. This is page 45.
1: The King Mashiach is destined to arise and restore the sovereignty of the house of David to its former rule. He will build the temple and gather the dispersed of Israel in his days all the Torah's laws will be reinstated when there arises a king from the house of David who studies Torah and fulfills the mitzvot like his ancestor David in accordance with both the written Torah and the oral Torah and he will influence all of Israel to walk in his ways and repair its breaches and he will fight the battles of God. He is presumed to be, the, be Mashiach. If he does this and is successful and he builds the temple in its place, and gathers the dispersed of Israel, then he is definitely Mashiach. He will then improve the entire world to serve God together as it is written, then I will transform the nations to a pure language that they will all call upon the name of God and serve Him with one purpose. In that era there will be no famine or war, no envy or competition, for goodness will be in abundance and all delights will be common, as commonplace as dust. The sole occupation of the world will be only to know God as it is written. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of God as waters cover the sea.
0: Thank you. If you notice there, the, the, the second, sorry, the last paragraph, the first few lines are what we quoted last week. But as you see, these are taken from a much larger description of, Ma- of Maimonides, regarding the messianic era the idea of in that era there's no famine or war or envy or competition and only goodness that's a small piece of this larger puzzle which includes things like um building the temple and gathering the dispersed of israel and um fighting the battles of god and and bringing together the whole world to to serve god in one with one with kind of one focus and the earth being filled with the knowledge of God, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There's a lot more information in text one from Maimonides than what we shared last week. And this brings me to my question. <coughs> my question is how would you frame this new, if you will, this, um, this vision of the Messianic era as we just read from Maimonides? How would you frame or contextualize this, this, uh, this vision of? The messianic era. Go ahead, jump in. How would you kind of, a lot of details, how would you kind of summarize it? What's going on?
2: Messiah would be the one who has all these criteria.
0: Okay, good, good. So the person, Mashiach, has certain criteria. Very good. Okay, good. What else? What else? Richard, yeah? It it
1: seems like everything is uh, physical. There's nothing uh, mystical going on here. There's rebuilding, there's laws. Uh, there's fighting battles. Uh, it seems to be very. You can. Nothing is out of the order, Nothing, nothing is very physical. You can see nothing.
0: I, I. I would. Okay. I hear you. I hear you. I would say. Have you tried to gather Jews together? Are you kidding me? You tell me that's an. That's a natural, normal thing. <laughs> <I got it. laughs> he's gathering the Jews from around the world together Ashkenaz and Sfard, Gefiltefish and Chamin and Shalin together are you kidding me? Everything, everyone together under the same roof? Gewaldek I mean that's, only Mashiach could pull that one off uh, but I hear you, um, okay what else how would you contextualize what we just read in text one, anybody else jump in anybody else okay, I'll tell you Oh yeah, Jerry, go ahead.
1: I've got a question about this. Sure. I, I talked to Avi, who was one of the one of the writers about it. So, how do you know when when how do you know that the person who says they're Mashiach is Mashiach? Ah. In here it says that that he'll fight, he'll influence all of Israel. He will fight the battles of God. And only afterwards, if he wins, do you know he's Mashiach. Right. If he doesn't win, is he not Mashiach?
0: These, the ex- now, how do you know? Excellent question. Excellent question. So here's the thing. The discuss- this part of the conversation about Mashiach and wars and knowing and the, and the process, we're actually going to cover in lesson number five extensively. So we're going to cover the process a little bit later on in the course. So it's a very good question, and I don't want to. I don't want to not address it, but I want to go through in the in the in the in the timeline. So we're going to get to it toward one of our later sessions. Um, but the way I want to frame what we just, what actually you just read in text number one, and we all read together, is that Maimonides is presenting a bit of a different story about Mashiach. Not altogether different, but. More information, different information than what we read about last week. Last week, Mashiach was this idea of a world perfected. Think of all the best qualities of the world as we have it now, right? Which is peaceful communities and peaceful societies and societies that where everyone has what they need and things are comfortable, right? Think of a comfortable living situation and then spread it to all corners of the world. Boom! That's Mashiach. That's a Uh, uh, a, yeah. I I think a key point here is to serve God. Oh, one second, one second. So that was last week's. I'm with you. That's where I'm going with this. So that was last week's version of Mashiach. This week, and again, it's not like different weeks. It's just what the the different texts that we quoted. But this week, as we look at the larger text from Maimonides, we see a bit of a different take. And that is, as Jay, Jay just said, a lot of it is about quote-unquote, right, serving God, which we need to understand what that actually means, what do we mean to serve God. But as Maimonides says there at the end, it's about the world being filled with the knowledge of God. It's about a divine consciousness spreading throughout the world, which is a bit of a different take, right? It's one thing to say that the Messianic era is a time of happiness and plenty and peace and contentment. It's another to say... That it's a time of spiritual enlightenment and divine worship and spiritual connection. That's a bit of a different version. Now, clearly, the two versions are sitting side by side in the writings of Maimonides. And as we'll see, and as I said at the beginning of the class, they're really two sides of the same coin. But tonight, we need to ask the question. I'm okay. I'm I'm like... uh, maybe an inner voice in in, in some of you. I'm okay with last week's version of Mashiach. That one I can totally get behind. But this week's version, a world that knows God, spiritual consciousness, divine connection, divine service, uh, sounds too religious, sounds too spiritual to me. I like last week's version, right? Give me the delights, take away the war, Give everybody food and water and let's call it a day. Why do we need all the spiritual stuff? What's with the spiritual stuff? You know, maybe back in the day they needed a temple or they needed a, you know, spiritual consciousness or whatever it is. But what, but really, wouldn't we be okay with last week's version of Mashiach? Why do we need this spiritual idea? And I am calling it a more spiritual um, uh, uh, description of Mashiach, even though it talks about, you know, fighting the battles and building the temple, which are maybe physical things and activities, but ultimately what it's leading to, as we read tonight, is a spiritual consciousness. The question is, who needs it, right? Spiritual consciousness. Hey, listen, don't quote me on this, and I hope we're not being recorded. We are, right? But that so- sounds kind of overrated, like with spiritual consciousness. Whatever. We have enough food. Everyone's okay with each other. No one's fighting. Cause Hey, we're fine. Good. That's it. Call it a day. Spiritual consciousness, the world will bathe in, in, divine, uh, in, d- in d- divine awareness. I don't know. Who needs it? That's the question tonight. Now, it's a rhetorical question because we're going to explore more about this. And I'm going to take you on a journey through philosophy and Kabbalah, right? Jewish philosophy, Jewish mysticism, and everything in between to kind of um, discover the role of spiritual awareness in our journey toward a perfected world why is it that we need knowledge of god divine consciousness to get a better world it seems like we can tweak it without right let me let me phrase it a little bit differently you know last week we were speaking about how mashiach is not here yet obviously right you'll you'll know when it happens right but but we're we're starting to see, we're starting to taste a little bit of the kugel before Shabbos, right? That's the language that we used last week. We're starting to taste from the chicken soup, from the challah. We're starting to taste some of the beautiful um, promises of Mashiach, right? We're starting to get more food in the pipeline and, 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 and distribute it to people. Wealth is increasing, etc., etc. That was last week's whole class. And a lot of that is happening through technology and science and medicine, right? And sometimes even politicians. Sometimes even politicians. So here's my question. Is Mashiach science, medicine, and politics? Or is it a spiritual thing? And if it is a spiritual thing, why? We're, we're, it seems, based on last week's class, we're making good progress. Give it some time, we'll get there, right? Do we need Mashiach or do we need, or do we need more MIT scientists you know, working to create some incredible new technology to help people walk who can't walk, right? Is it, is it God or is it science? That's another way of phrasing the question that we're dealing with tonight. Does this make sense what I'm saying? Yes? Sort of? A little bit? Kind of? All right, good. As long as we're, as long, even if we're a little bit there. Okay, so again, we have a vision of Mashiach and the physical blessings and then we have a spiritual awakening. And my question now is, who needs it? Part two. Who needs a spiritual awakening? Right? Give me the good stuff and we're done. So let's explore further. I told you tonight is a bit of a, of a puzzle. In Hebrew, we would call it a pill-pull, which means we're going to have to put together a bunch of pieces to really appreciate the the full the full picture the perspective it's kind of like a puzzle right you got to get all the pieces together to see the whole to see the whole picture so stay with me as we start working on developing this this larger idea so to understand why the spiritual side of the messianic era we need to first explore a bigger question what I would say is um, a broader question. Let's take a step back and ask the question, why is Judaism so obsessed with Mashiach? And and let me explain what I mean when I say obsessed. I mean, Judaism is obsessed with the Messianic era. Like, super obsessed. And if you don't think that Judaism is obsessed with Mashiach, let me tell you. Look at the prayers. Look, Open up a siddur, a Jewish prayer book. Right? Every... Jewish prayer, at the center of the prayer is a prayer that we call the Amidah. That's like the prayer that everyone stands up. By the way, if you come to synagogue, the whole time the rabbi goes, you may be seated, you may, be sa- you may stand up, or please rise, you may be seated, please rise, you may be seated. But one of those please rise moments where, um, where, you, where everyone stands up and it's kind of, it's not silent prayer, but it's more of it's not loud. It's kind of quieter prayer, which is meant to be done with a lot of focus and connection. Is the prayer that we call the Amidah, the standing prayer, and this prayer um, during the weekday is comprised of nineteen blessings. That's why it's called Shemona Esreh, which means eighteen. I know the number is off, but wait. Wait, there's a good explanation. It used to be 18 blessings until they added one more. So now we still call it Shemona Esra, which means 18, but it actually has 19 blessings. We're hoping that no one does the math and blows this whole thing up, but we didn't change the name. It's still called Shemona Esra or the Amidah. Okay, so it's 19 blessings. And of the 19 blessings, get this, a whopping, and I said whopping, seven of 19 are about Mashiach. Yes, at the core of Jewish prayer, the Amidah, 7 of 19, I'm not going to give you the fraction or the, um, yeah, I'm not going to do the math on this. 7 of 19 are about the Messianic era. And in case you're wondering, well, what are these 7? Do I have news for you. Not, 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 not I have news, but I have a text to share with you. All right, let's see if this works. Let me share my screen. Yep, yeah, here we go. All right, let's look at now text number two. I'm going to read this because it's a lot of excerpts, and I may want to move a little bit quickly through this. So here we go. This is, again, Don't. I want you to keep sight of what we're doing. I'm showing you about Judaism, Judaism's obsession with Mashiach, beginning with the prayers. So, Sidr, the Amidah, here we go, second blessing. Blessing number two says in English, You are mighty forever, my Lord. You resurrect the dead. You are powerful to save. Resurrection of the dead? That's messianic. Let's skip now to set blessing number seven. Seventh blessing. This is page 48. Oh, behold our affliction and wage our battle. Redeem us speedily for the sake of your name, for you, God, are the mighty redeemer. Redeem us. That sounds messianic. Tenth blessing. Sound the great chauffeur for our freedom. Raise a banner to gather our exiles. Gather our exiles means bring us back home to the Holy Land. Boom, messianic. Eleventh blessing. Restore our judges as in former times and our counselors as of yore. Remove from us sorrow and sighing and reign over us, etc. Restore our judges. This means give us back... Our leadership of old. Fourteenth blessing. Return in mercy to Jerusalem, your city, and dwell therein as you have promised. Speedily establish therein the throne of David, your servant, and rebuild it. Boom! Rebuilding of Jerusalem. Return to Israel. And uh, rebuilding of the Davidic dynasty. That sounds messianic. Blessing number fifteen. We're now on page 50. I'm moving quickly through this. Speedily cause the scion of David, your servant, to flourish and increase his power by your salvation. For we hope for your salvation all day. Boom, again, Messianic. Citing the progeny of of David, which is Mashiach. Mashiach comes from the Messiah, comes from from the Davidic dynasty, etc. So again, we're speaking about the Messianic era and asking for it. And finally, blessing number 17. We say, look with favor, Lord our God, on your people Israel and pay heed to their prayer. Restore the service to your sanctuary and accept with love and favor Israel's fire offering and prayer. We're asking to restore the service to your sanctuary, the Holy Temple. We're asking for rebuilding the Holy Temple here. These are a selection of prayers from the Amidah. I hope what I just said came through clearly. Here are seven blessings excerpted from the Amida that I further excerpted and what we see here is an obsession with the Messianic era again and again. In different ways, we're asking for Mashiach. We're asking for God to revive the dead, to redeem us, to gather our exiles, to restore our leadership, to rebuild Jerusalem, to revive Jewish sovereignty, to reinstate the temple. We're asking for Mashiach every which way God's like, wait a second, are you talking about Mashiach? Yes, that's the whole thing we're talking about again and again and again. And if you think it's only the Amida, well, you What's the expression? You've got uh, something else coming or something like that, right? It's not only the Amidah. It's other prayers that are talking about, I'm struggling with the cliches here, but it's other prayers in our Siddur prayer books that also talk about Mashiach. And if you think it's just prayer, again, that's not the case. Why? Because in Jewish, and the Jewish holidays, we also find an obsession with Mashiach. When we travel the Jewish calendar and we go through the cycle of the year, we encounter major Jewish holidays wherein the, 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 the yearning and the hope for Mashiach for the Messianic era is expressed. Notably, I'm giving just a few examples Yom Kippur. At the end of Yom Kippur, what happens? I know what happens, everyone eats, but before the end, right? Right before the end, right? We sound the shofar. Right? And the shofar is sounded and everyone breathes a sigh of relief and says ah, oh, shofar, so good and, and I had to, I'm sorry and then right after the shofar is sounded, everyone proclaims L'shana Haba bi-Yerushalayim." next year in Jerusalem and what do we mean? We'll get a good deal on Delta or El No. I mean, yeah, also, but what we mean is Mashiach, the Messianic era. By next year, may we be already back home in in the Holy Land. And what do we proclaim at the end of the Passover Seder? You guessed it. Next year in Jerusalem, the holidays are marked, are punctuated. Major Jewish holidays and observances are punctuated with a Messianic yearning. Yom Kippur, Passover. I would say uh, it's not it's not it's not I who are, who am saying this only this is well known the two most observed holidays are Yom Kippur and Passover right the Neilah service and the Passover Seder are two of the most widely attended Jewish I don't know Jewish moments throughout the year so and at both of these occasions with a big crowd Right? What do we say? L'shana HaBab Yerushalayim. Next year in Jerusalem. Mashiach. And what about in the summer? Right? What about in the summer? We have the three weeks and the nine days and uh, the 17th of Tammuz and and the 9th of Av, B'Av. Fast days. And what are the fast days marking? The days in which the temple was destroyed. And what do we pray for on those days? The rebuilding of the temple. Again, Messianic themes. Themes of Mashiach. Let's talk about life cycles, life cycle events. At the Brit Milah, we have a chair for Elijah. Who is Elijah? Elijah is the prophet who is going to herald the coming of Mashiach. He's going to let us know, right? If you're wondering how you know, Elijah is going to let you know. That's uh, that's one thing, one life cycle. At a wedding, let's keep on going through major life cycles. At a wedding, there are seven blessings under the chuppah. Known as the Sheva Brachot, seven blessings. Blessing number seven. May we soon hear in the streets of Jerusalem the sound, I'm paraphrasing, of rejoicing with the coming of Mashiach. And we break a glass at the end of the chuppah. Why? Why? Because we mourn the destruction of the temple and at the height of our joy, we remember that our joy is not complete until we are once again back home with the temple in Jerusalem. Again, life cycle events punctuated by the hope, yearning, and belief and prayer for Mashiach for the Messianic era. And finally, final life cycle event that I'll mention is when it comes to a funeral and the mourning stage after the passing of a loved one, many of the prayers and blessings and offerings of comfort, which we discussed in our last course, that we recite, speak about our belief in the Messianic era and especially the resurrection of the dead. And so, my friends, one thing is clear. Whether we're looking at the Jewish prayer book or whether we're, looking, or whether we're cycling through the Jewish calendar or whether we're celebrating a Jewish life cycle event, you can be sure that inevitably there will be some sort of messianic reference. Open up your prayer book. Within a few pages, you'll find a mention of a prayer for Mashiach. Put your finger on a calendar date. You'll be close to a holiday, which references Mashiach. A life cycle event, Mashiach, the Messiah, the messianic era. Judaism is obsessed with Mashiach, with the Messiah. In addition to this, I mentioned this last week, Maimonides has 13 articulations of Jewish faith, 13 principles of Jewish faith. Two of the 13 are about Mashiach. If you want to see the list, I'm going to share my screen with you. Take a look at this list. Um, this is page 53, figure 2.2 Maimonides 13 Foundations of Jewish Faith I want to show you what company Mashiach is in over here with these principles. Number one belief in God Um, sorry, belief that God is the first cause and the, the source of everything belief number two remember these are principles of Jewish faith. Number two is that God is one The oneness of God. Number three is that God is not physical, does not have a body. Number four, that God is eternal. Number five is that we are to worship God and not anything else. Number six is that God communicates to us through prophecy. Number seven is that Moses was a true prophet. Number eight is that Torah is true. Number nine is a mistake in your books. Number nine is that Torah is eternal. God is not physical is number three. The editors made a mistake. They put nine as number three or they, they repeated not three, nine as a repeat of three. Nine is Torah is eternal. Ten is God knows, God is omniscient, all-knowing. Number 11, there is reward and punishment for what we do. Number 12 and 13 are the ones that are relevant to our discussion. The belief in Mashiach and the belief in the resurrection of the dead. This is 12 and 13. They're, they're in bold, in your books, on my screen, on your screen now ready to go. And what you see here, and what I see here, is that belief in Mashiach is on par with belief in God, belief in Torah, belief in reward and punishment, belief in prophecy, the big ideas of Judaism. Judaism is obsessed with Mashiach, with the notion of the Messianic era. And my question tonight, here's my question. My question is, what's with the obsession? What's with the obsession? Why is it such a big deal in Judaism? So Mashiach will come, all right, when it happens, it happens. Why are we so obsessed? We're praying for it. We're yearning for it. We're breaking glasses because of it. We're, we're all sorts of things, right? For Mashiach or to remind ourselves about Mashiach. What's the obsession, right? Take it easy. What's the obsession? Let me check in with you guys. The question makes sense? Yes? Yes? Yes. I think uh, we are put here to perfect the world. Okay, oh, hold on, hold on one second. Good, good. Good gazat. Said well. I want to give you an answer that some have given. This is more of a humanistic answer. And I want to lead you down the path, and I want one of you to mention it. You ready? I want to, I'm, I'm leading the witness. You ready? Here we go. Some have posited and said, the reason why Judaism and Jewish ritual is so replete, so filled with mentions of the Messiah, the Messianic era, is because look at Jewish history over the last few thousand years, right? Look what's been going on over the last 2,000 years. So let me now lead you to, I want one of you to tell me what I'm, what I'm leading toward. How have things been for Jews over the last few thousand years? After, since the destruction of the temple, how have things, been, in one word, how would you describe life, generally, for Jews over the last 2,000 years?
1: Uh, Sucked.
0: Yeah, it's pretty bad. Pretty terrible, right? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, pretty bad. Pretty terrible. And and so some, right, and so some have posited why the obsession with Mashiach. Well, what is Mashiach? Based on what we said last week, what's Mashiach? Hope. Hope. Good. Imagine a people um, downtrodden and and, and harassed and expelled, etc. What are they going to hold on to? A hope for a better future. That's the one thing they're holding on to. And so some have said, oh, it makes sense why Judaism is obsessed with the Messianic era because it's been kind of terrible for Jews over the last few thousand years, and so it makes sense that Jews and Judaism would be all Mashiach, 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 Marsha, 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 believing, hoping, and praying for some relief for a better time. In other words, some explain it as contextual. Straight up contextual. When you're dealing with, (laughs) when you, look, somebody in jail is going to be praying and hoping and yearning for freedom. So a Jew in exile is going to be hoping, praying, and yearning for, right? Getting out of exile, what we call Mashiach. Boom, there you go. Simple explanation. And the truth is, the truth is, it would even seem like that, that this is the case. This is the rationale behind Judaism's obsession with Mashiach. And as we need it as the resolution of this great problem called Jewish suffering, right? So this actually seems to have uh, some weight behind it based on a verse from the Torah. Take a look at what I'm about to share with you. Um, It's in your books. It's going to be on my screen in a moment. Take a look at text number three. This is page 55, text number three. Let's ask Jay. Please read this one from Deuteronomy. Take it away.
3: God will return your exiles and he will have mercy upon you. He will return and gather you from all the nations amongst whom God has scattered you. If your outcasts will be at the ends of the heavens, from there God will gather you. From there he will take you. God will bring you into the land your ancestors possessed and you will possess it and he will do good and multiply you more than your ancestors. And he will return and listen to the voice of God. You will return and listen to the voice of God and fulfill
0: his commandments. Perfect. So this is what the Torah says again in Deuteronomy chapter 30. And what's the upshot? The upshot is that when you are, this is a prophecy of, the, because the exile hadn't happened yet. This is still in the times of Moses. The Jews are traveling through the desert after the exodus on the way to Israel, actually very shortly going to enter the land of Israel. And and Moses is kind of foretelling, the Torah is foretelling, prophetically about what will happen, that the Jews are going to end up in exile. And then God will return your exiles. He will have mercy upon you. He'll gather your people from amongst the four corners of the earth and bring you back to the promised land, etc. Boom, again, Mashiach in this verse seems like A solution to a problem. Are you with me on this? Mashiach seems simply like a solution to a problem. What's the problem? The problem is Jewish suffering, Jewish hardship, Jewish exile. And the solution? Mashiach. Coming back to our homeland and a good life. Being able to do what we do and and how we do it. Sounds good. Sounds great. So if you ask the question, why the obsession with Mashiach? A simple, a simple answer could be, have you seen us lately? Things are, or I mean, over the past 2,000 years, things have been challenging. We need Mashiach. But that's not the full picture. You could probably guess by now that we're not going to settle with this way of thinking. This is not, this is not the full picture. There's so much more to this obsession with Mashiach, with the Messianic era. And let me explain where we see this. Where we see this is in the opening of the Torah itself. In other words, if we go back to the beginning, if we go back to the beginning of Genesis and we look at how the Torah opens, we will find something really magnificent, something mysterious, but something really telling. I'm going to share my screen with you once again, let's do this together, text 4A, okay? Here we go, text 4A, Um, this will be in your books on page 56. So let's ask Adina Malka. please read this one. Um, Please read from the beginning of this text, text 4A.
2: The hovering spirit. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was chaotic and desolate, and darkness was on the face to the watery depths. The Spirit of God hovered upon the waters.
0: Okay, thank you. So it's important. It's important to note what this verse is saying. Um, it's actually very intriguing, and there's a question. There is a question that I want to raise from this verse, okay? Here we go. The Torah says, right, let's go through, let, let's analyze this text. It's a text that we've probably seen, verses that we've seen, you know, many, many times. But let's, let's analyze it, and you know what, let me zoom in on it. Let's just really, ooh, look at that, it's really big now. Okay, so in the beginning, let's break this down. God created the heavens and the earth, okay? So far, so good. The earth was chaotic and desolate, okay? Darkness was on the face of the watery depths, okay? But here is a very mysterious line. And the Spirit of God hovered upon the waters. I want to ask you a question. The question is, what does it mean that the Spirit of God is hovering upon the face, uh, sorry, the Spirit of God is hovering or hovered on the face? upon the waters what does that mean what does it mean that God spirit of God is hovering on the waters what kind of spirit of God and what hovering does anyone want to throw something out there I know you could read ahead read Rabbeinah Bachaya. it's fine but does something something uh, come out at you with this with God hovering on the waters what does that even mean are you with me on the question
2: and God moved down the waters
0: well he moved the waters day number two so this is in the beginning this is before day two it seems like the waters are the waters they're not going anywhere yet day two he separates lower waters upper waters that's correct but at this point it's god hovering upon the waters what does that mean so mysterious so so like yeah i don't it just seems to me like he's a parent
1: looking over his creation he's he's he wants to take care of He's observing the situation from above in a
0: caring way. Nice. Okay, good. I like that. I like that. Let's take a look at what Rabbeinah B'chaia says. Robin, yeah, go ahead. Jay. I
3: think that when you study the text, the, in the beginning, he created heavens here. So this is all in potential. And I think he's hovering over the waters, sort of in a contemplative way, like what is the next step? because this
0: is all in potential because when nice. created life. Good, good. Hold that thought. I like what you're saying. Hold that thought. Let's take a look now, or a Bain who says, I think you'll see something pretty similar, but in different words. Text 4B, Adina Malka. If you don't mind, please continue reading. This is a beautiful take on this.
2: The Spirit of, the spirit of God hovered upon the waters. This is the soul of Mashiach. The meaning of this Midrash is, in this passage, God is foretelling the end at the beginning. The Torah's intention is to indicate the end of time at the very beginning of time, to teach us that the ultimate purpose of God's creation of the world is the days of Mashiach. Thus, the original thought is actualized in the conclusion of the work.
0: Take a, this is, okay, so we got to break this down because again, this is pretty beautiful and deep stuff. The Midrash says, ancient Midrashic teaching says that the Spirit of God is a reference to Mashiach. Right? When the Torah says, when the Bible says the Spirit of God um, was hovering on the waters, it's referring to Mashiach. Rabbeinu Bechayah says, you know what this means? Here's what it means it means, it means that. Second, it means that God is foretelling the end at the beginning. In other words, from the beginning of the Torah, from verse number two of Genesis, the second verse of the Torah, it's already telling us what the whole purpose of creation is. Why was the world created? The world was created for Mashiach. The Spirit of God is hovering on the waters. What that means is it's not yet settled. Because if it's hovering, it means it's not yet there. As Jay said before, it connotes potential. It's not actualized yet. If the Spirit of God is in the earth, then it's already materialized. But hovering on the waters is indicative of a state of spiritual, of spirituality that is not yet Saturating the world. It's only hovering above the waters. Remember at that point, just to clarify, at that point the waters were covering the earth. Let me clarify. Yes? Does you remember that in the story of Genesis? Story of Baratius? Right. Only day two did God um actually day three after the waters were separated between upper and lower waters did then God clear away, gather the waters to one place to create dry land. That happens on day number three. So dry land doesn't exist yet. So when it talks about the Spirit of God hovering over the waters, it means hovering over the earth, but it means that God is not saturating the earth yet. It's still hovering, but that doesn't mean necessarily God. It means the soul of Mashiach, the Messianic era, is not yet at hand. So Rabbeinu B'chaius says that with this... The Torah is teaching us, let me just stop sharing because we've see, we, you already had a chance to look at this for a while, and I want to see you a little bit closer. Rabbeinah B'chai is saying the following. In the Torah, God at the beginning is telling us where this is headed. You know, it's baseball season now. And if you recall, any baseball fans, raise your hand if you're a baseball fan. Yes, yes. Raise your hand if you know the name Yu Darvish. Raise your hand if you know Yu, Dar- Yu Darvish. A little bit? Some people? All right. You Darvish is a wonderful pitcher. He's a great pitcher. The problem is, a multiple times in his career, he has been tipping his pitches. No, that's not like giving extra money if they do a good job. That's... Tipping pitches means that you're, you're doing some sort of physical movement to indicate to the batter which pitch you are about to deliver. Which is... Lethal if you're a major league pitcher because Chicago Cubs playing in Atlanta tonight. Yes, is you Darvish is on Atlanta is on Chicago now or he was on Chicago? He was on Texas, he was on the Dodgers. Is he all right? Somebody has to look him up. Anyway, here's the point. You Darvish, now you're getting a sheer you're getting a class on baseball now. All right, it's happening. So depending on how you hold the ball, release the ball, spin the ball, the batter can know. Is it if sorry?
2: On the Cubs.
0: On the Cubs. There you go. There you go. The Cubs are in Atlanta tonight. But there's no better place to be than right here. You know why? Because you can always watch that later. And I know I record these also, but it's not the same. All right. Back to our story. So, Dar- back to you, Darvish. You, Darvish, tipped his pitches on the Rangers, on the Dodgers. If you recall, a few years ago, he pitched in the World Series or in the playoffs. He got... S- s- slapped around, smacked around, whatever. He got hit hard by the other team because he was tipping his pitches. The batters could see if it's a fastball, curveball, change change up, et cetera, off-speed pitch. They were able to see it based on his movement. So from the beginning, he was tipping the pitch that would end up over the plate, and they knew what was coming. God is tipping his pitches at the beginning of Torah. God is saying, you know what's coming your way? Mashiach is coming your way. That's what it means that the Spirit of God is hovering on the waters. The Spirit of Mashiach. God is telling us at the beginning, FYI, the world as you know it is not the end game. It's not built and finalized. It will have a better ending. There is a greater potential. We call that Mashiach.
3: Also, just to put a note in there, he's he's talking about the four exiles in the same paragraph. He's tipping his pictures
0: there too. Right. He's talking about the, uh, the desolation and the void and the emptiness and all that stuff, right? Exactly. And the Spirit of God is hovering over the waters. What we see here is that the notion that the world was built for Mashiach is not just, so Mashiach is not just a response to suffering, Mashiach is the original intent. And that becomes a very important point. I want to just cycle back a drop to, to, to remind us all how we got to where we got just now. I asked the question before, why is Judaism obsessed with Mashiach, with the Messianic era? Right? What's the obsession about? In the prayers, in the life cycles, in the holidays, and enough already. What's the obsession? So I said, maybe one could say, because it's been so difficult, so we really need it. We're really excited about it. We really need to uh, get out of exile card, and we're excited about Mashiach. Well, Mashiach is not just a get out of exile card. Mashiach is the ultimate purpose of creation itself. God is tipping his pitches. God is saying, I made this world for the purpose of Mashiach, which means the messianic era. It's not just the solution to a technical problem. It is the purpose of all of existence, which tells us that it answers the big questions that everyone asks, the big existential questions like, why are we here? What's the purpose of life? What's the purpose of creation? Why did God create the world? We now have the answer. Why are we here? Why did God create the world? For Mashiach. You and I are here. The world is here. Everything is here for this ultimate end game for the messianic era what we called last week and earlier tonight the end of days why is it the end of days not because of some sort of cataclysmic end or apocalyptic end or some sort of horrific end, god forbid it's the end because it's the tachlit tachlit means the ultimate destination the ultimate purpose right it's like when you're on a train from Atlanta to Chicago, or Chicago to Atlanta. The end is not doom and gloom, it's where you want it to go. It's your destination. Mashiach, the Messianic era, is the destination of creation. God says at the beginning, I'm making this for that Messianic destination. That is what we just learned from the Midrash, from the Torah, the Midrash, and Rabbeinah B'chayah. So, now we are primed to put the next piece of the puzzle in. Because what we've seen is that not only is Mashiach an obsession of Judaism, it's more than an obsession. It's the very why and wherefore of all of existence. So now we need to kind of, re, kind of correct our question. Instead of asking why is Judaism obsessed with Mashiach, now we need to ask, Why is Mashiach such a big deal? Or why is it the purpose of creation? Like, what's the big deal with the Messianic era? So to recap, what we've learned so far is, number one, from the beginning of the class until now, I want to distill them to three principles. Number one, the Messianic era has a very strong spiritual side to it. That's how we started the class. Last week was the physical side, spiritual side, very strong spiritual side. Number two, The belief in Mashiach and the Messianic era is central to Judaism. And number three, it's not just about ending suffering. It's about achieving the purpose of existence. All of this leads to the whopper of all whopper questions. The Big Mac of... Wait, no, that's wrong, wrong, wrong analogy. This leads us to the whopper of questions. And the whopper of all whopper questions is, listen to this, if the purpose of creation is this messianic era, an era of, as we saw before, spiritual enlightenment with the Spirit of God no longer hovering but saturating the earth, then why wasn't it created that way from the beginning? If that's God's end game, so why not just make it like that? From the beginning. Why not create a world that is a spiritual paradise? That is a spiritual utopia? That is a messianic era? From day number one, Susan.
2: Did that not happen? Garden of
0: Eden? No. The way we understand, good question. You're asking, well, maybe it did. Maybe we did have Mashiach in a form of the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve before the sin. Kind of, sort of, but no, it wasn't there yet. The, our understanding of the Messianic era is a state of reality in which there's no going back, backsliding to a negative space, which means if there was a Garden of Eden and then the possibility and actualization of sin and descent, that means that that was not Mashiach. That's not the Messiah that we're talking about. That's not that state. Now, it's a nice, you know, it was a nice... Uh, yeah, it's nicer than, you know, some parts of town, but it's not it's not yet that final destination. It's not yet the fulfillment of this of this vision. In other words, we'll know it when we're there and we haven't been there yet, even throughout history. By the way, lesson four, lesson four, in two weeks, we're going to go through the arc of human history from creation of the Garden of Eden until today and explore how each stage is a necessary part of this of this, uh, of, of this um, progression. But tonight, we're not getting so detailed, we're asking a more general question. If God is creating the world for there to be a spiritual utopia, a spiritual enlightenment space, so then why not make it like that and be done with it? Why create all the drama and unfinished business? Why, why all this stuff in, the, in between? Why not just do the job that you set out to do, you're God, you can make it happen, create the messianic world that you want. What God created the world and he had a vision that would only actualize later on. Hello, he's God, why Why, why this whole, he, it's going to actualize later on. Make it happen now. What about the Garden of Eden? It's not, it's not Mashiach. It's not Mashiach. It's not the messianic era. It was. It's nice. It's nice. We call it utopia also, but it's... Uh, it's Again, we'll see more details in lesson four. It wasn't wasn't quite there yet. But if God has a vision, why not make it? I I want to give you an analogy. You have a, let's say I told you that you now have an opportunity, right, to build your dream home. So imagine your dream home and we'll make it a reality. So you would think, okay, so where do I want it? What should it look like? What should it have? You have all these ideas and thoughts. And then once you have that finalized, then, it would, then there would be a process of actually building it. That's because we're talking about human beings. But when you talk about God, right, God has a vision of what the world should look like. Boom, it's done. So if God wants a perfected world, if God wants a messianic world, if God wants a perfectly, you know, a perfect utopia, physical and spiritual Done. What's this business of the Spirit of God is hovering on the face of the waters and, 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 and then it's only going to be actualized later on in the Messianic era, what God in, originally intended. Sof ma'iseh b'machshavah t'chilah. The end was originally What's going to happen at the end was in the original intention. So God knew it, but it didn't happen until later on. What's this later on business? Done. God wants it. It should be done. Why all the drama? Why all the delay? Now I know this, I know that I've asked probably four or five big questions tonight. Like for example, why the spiritual stuff with Mashiach? Why is Mashiach such an obsession? Um, why is it the, 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 the purpose of the world? Why didn't God do it if, he wanted, if that was the purpose? Why didn't you just get it done right away? I know I'm asking a lot of questions and not answering them yet, but what I'm doing is setting up dominoes, intellectual dominoes, conceptual dominoes, one after the other after the other, when we hit the last one, everything's gonna fall. Are you with me? In other words, we're building, we're scaffolding, we're building, we're layering questions. When we answer the last, when we present the last piece, everything's gonna topple in a good way, a good type of toppling. So let's embark on the final leg of our journey, after which everything will become clear, hopefully. That's my goal, right? So let, but this is now the final stage the final leg of the journey. So think about it in open parentheses terms. Right? You have a parentheses inside of which there's another and another and another. Soon it's going to be closed and everything is going to come together. Okay? Stay with me. Here we go. To understand all of this, and I mean all of this, we're going to need to look at the writings of Jewish mysticism. We've looked at Scripture. We've looked at Midrash. We've looked at philosophy. We've looked at Halacha Jewish Law. Now it's time, like I said in the beginning of the class, to get a little mystical. To do this, we're going to turn to the Book of Tanya. The Book of Tanya is one of the greatest spiritual guide, Jewish, Jewish spiritual guides ever penned, certainly in the last several hundred years. It is considered to be the Bible, of Chabad Hasidic philosophy, mystical study. Um, it was written by the Alter Rebbe, the founder of the Chabad Hasidic movement, and it is absolutely magnificent. I want to begin with a quote from this book, called Tanya, chapter 36. Not the whole chapter, just a little piece of it. I want to do this with you. Okay, I'm going to share my screen. Let's jump in together, and let's finally put all the pieces Together. Let me fast-forward through some of this stuff. Okay, I think I found it. Page 60, text number five. Let's ask um, David. Please read this one again at uh, text five. Primordial desire.
3: As is known, the stages have said that the purpose of the creation of this world is that God desired that he should have a home in the holy world. It is also known that the days of Ashiya, and especially the time of the resurrection of the dead, are the fulfillment and culmination of the creation of this world and the purpose of
0: which it is to be Thank you. So essentially, what it seems like at first glance is, the Rebbe in Tanya is pretty much echoing what we learned before, right? That the purpose of the creation of the world is that God should be here on earth, right? That instead of hovering over the water, that God should be permeating, saturating the earth itself, so to speak, which is what we call Mashiach, resurrection of the dead, fulfillment of of, of creation, purpose for which it was all created, etc. It seems to be restating what we said before. And on some level it is. We also find this in text number six. Um, Let's ask Ray, if you're up to reading, Ray, please read text. Uh, Please unmute and please read text. Number six, don't forget to unmute, yes, perfect.
2: This is what the human being is all about. This is the purpose of the human being's creation and of the creation of all the world, both the lofty and the lowly, that God should have this home in the lowly world.
0: Again, te- thank you. Text number six, chapter 33 of Tanya. Once again, the Altareb, of Hashanir Zaman of the Adi, is explaining what the purpose of all of this is about, right? Why are we here? What's this all about? So the Alter says we're all here for a simple purpose, for a singular purpose, which is we're here for um, to make a home for God in this world. That is, that is absolutely why we are here, right? We're here in order that. A second here. We're here in order that God should have a home in this lowly world. Right? That instead of hovering, using the language before, instead of hovering over the waters, that God should be right here, right now. Good. Sounds, sounds great. Sounds wonderful, and it sounds pretty much consistent. Purpose of creation is for God to be here. I have a simple question for you Why is it called lowly? Why does it say this lowly world? Why besmirch it? Why? denigrate this world that we live in why call it lowly who's why such an ugly adjective why not just say that God wanted a home or the purpose of creation is to have a home for God in this physical world why not use the word like physical or maybe our world why why not call it something nice why call it lowly lowly world Why, why denigrate it like that and so my friends this opens us up to the big idea. And the big idea is that there are different created realms. Kabbalah teaches us about different created realms. Generally speaking, there are four worlds. I'll share my screen with you once again so that we can do this together inside. Take a look at, we're gonna skip text seven. Let's quickly look at figure 2.4 on page 65. And you see here, there's a circle, and there's four, I don't know, dimensions, levels. There's atsilut, emanation, bria, creation, yitzira, formation, and Asiya, which is action. Four different dimensions of existence. Four different realms of existence, of creation, as defined and clarified in Kabbalah. Now, we don't have the time tonight to go through each, each of these four and to explain what they are and how they work and, and where they are and all that stuff because, honestly, this is a much larger conversation. It's something that we cover Sunday mornings in Kabbalah and Coffee. Everyone's invited to join me for that class. It's a weekly class every Sunday morning at 9.30 a.m. We cover Kabbalah, all sorts of mystical things. But for the purposes of tonight's discussion, here's what you need to know. We exist... in the the lowest world called Asiya, And so when the author says in Tanya that God wanted a home in the lowly world, what he means is this one all the way down here, down south, right in the deep south, Asiya, the world of action. That's where God wanted a home. And so it's called lowly because it is the lowest world, which further begs a question. What, these worlds exist somehow on an elevator, on an elevator continuum? What, it's like, going up to Bria, to Yitzira, going up to Bria, going up top floor, penthouse floor, to Atsilut. Is that, is, that, is that what's going on? Or do you take a spaceship from one to the other? Or maybe shoots and ladders, right? You climb up a ladder to get to a higher world, and then whee, you go down if you want a lower world. Maybe it's like cool, like maybe Google has, instead of elevators, maybe they have slides. I don't know if they have slides, but I wouldn't put it past them because that's how they operate in that cool, open space. Stuff. Are you with me on what I'm saying? Yes? Let's bring it back. The question that I'm asking is, what makes a world higher and what makes a world lower? What makes a world above or below another given world? And it's not, here's the clue, it's not spatial. It's not like, well, one, you got to climb or one, you have to take an elevator. And when you go down, that's not the distinction between worlds, why one is higher and one is lower. It's not like we're here, Asia, the world of action is here. And then if you want to, at Silut, the, higher, the highest world is uh, it's all the way up in the sky. That's not what, it, it's not, it's not what it is. So what's higher and what's lower? Here we go. Higher and lower simply means... Not closeness to God, because God is everywhere equally. But it means degree to, the degree to which a given realm recognizes its true creator or its existence or the truth of its existence. The more a realm recognizes its source with a capital S, the higher it is. The closer to that truth it is. Not objectively, but subjectively, because of its awareness. Whereas a realm that does not recognize, is not aware of its source, that is considered to be a lower realm. Let me give you an example. Before we get too far, I'm too deep in this. Simple example. Two rooms. Imagine two classrooms. In one classroom, you have 20 top physicists. In the second classroom, you have 26 year olds. In which room is E equals MC squared more apparent? (laughs) Room number one. Now, in which room is E equals MC squared true? Both, both rooms is true. But in which room is this truth known, appreciated, recognized, labeled as such, studied, observed, blah, blah, blah? Room number one. The six-year-olds don't really know it. Not aware of it. Wouldn't get it if you try to explain it to them, most likely. The truth exists in both spaces. But the truth is recognized in one space. God is everywhere. God is recognized more in what we call the higher realms or higher worlds and less in the lower realms or lower worlds. So where is God? Everywhere. But where is God visibly seen? Up there. Not physically up there. We call it higher because it's closer To the truth, not objectively, subjectively. It recognizes the truth to a greater degree than a lower realm, which is oblivious to the truth. So let's talk about the lowly realm, or what I like to call the lowest realm, which is us. I asked before, why did the Rebbe and Tanya say that God wanted a home in the lowly realm, lowly world? Why Why so negative? Why lowly? Call it physical. That's not what God wanted. God wanted a home in the lowly world. What's the lowly world? Let's explain that. Lowly means it's the lowest. Well, lowly doesn't necessarily mean the lowest, but this world is the lowest in the continuum. And what that means is by default, we don't recognize God. What we recognize is ourselves. Like the atheist in the forest, oh, call back. Like the atheist in the forest, by default, what we recognize is self. We're self-aware, we're self-conscious, not in a negative way, just in, a, in an existential way. We are aware of self. Yes, people think about God and they believe in God, but all of that is what I like to call aftermarket research. That's all like, I've discovered, I've studied, I studied Torah, I meditated, someone told me, and therefore, etc. cetera. Firsthand knowledge is of self, not of God. You look at a tree, I'm in, I'm in our shul now, And if you've been to Chabad in town, you know that we have a mechitza made of artificial trees. I'm literally looking at trees right in front of me. Um, So, yeah, when you look at a tree, you don't see God. Not even these trees. Not even, right? You look at a tree, you see a tree. You look outside, you see a building, a building, a car, a person. You don't see God. You're telling me, no, 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 no. What do you mean? You don't see God? And you're the rabbi? What do you mean? I see God. You don't see God. You're thinking about God. You're projecting God upon whatever you look at. You don't see God. You see physical existence. You don't see God. Sorry, I hate to be so uh, so negative, but I'm just saying the truth is you don't see God. You see the physical, and we have to extrapolate and meditate and, and imagine God on top of what we see biologically, because God created this world, our world, as a lowly world by divine design. God wanted a space in which he's not automatically seen. And he wanted that space in which by nature he's not seen. In which naturally there is a curtain dividing between creator and creation. A very thick curtain at that. He wanted that realm on their own to poke through the curtain. And to allow light to seep through. And that's what we do when we create a home for God here. God wanted a realm that is lowly to be a home for Him. Does that make sense what I just said? As the Baal Shem Tev said, life, this world, is like a game of hide and seek. God hides, and our job is to find Him. By default, we don't see God. We have to look and look and search and study and meditate and pray and study again and meditate more till we finally poke enough holes that we can start seeing the light come through. But by default, the default setting on this world is a lowly world, a world in which we don't automatically see God. And so this answers the very last question we just asked and then we're gonna reverse everything domino effect. The last question we asked if you can recall was, if God wanted Mashiach, a messianic world, why not just make it? Because that's not what God wanted. God didn't just want a perfect, a spiritually woke world, to borrow some modern terminology. That's not what God wanted. God wanted a world that's not spiritually awake awake, to become on its own woke. You see the difference? If God made it, If God made the world spiritually aware, it wouldn't be a lowly world. And if it's not a lowly world, then God doesn't have a home in a lowly world. You see, lowly is a key part of God's desire, of what God wanted, of the purpose of all of this. God didn't just want the higher realms. He could have stopped. I'm going to show my screen again. Yeah? If God wanted a a spiritual realm, He could have stopped with that siloet. But he kept on going, Bria, Yetzirah, Sia," the details of which we cannot get into right now due to time constraints. But God kept on going until he created this world, this lowly world, a world in which we don't see him automatically, by default, so that we could have the opportunity, you and I, to discover God on our own and have that achievement. That's what God wanted. God did not want to hand us or to create a space that is spiritually alive. God already had that. That's not what God created this world. God created this world to create a space of, where a a world which is spiritually opaque, where you don't see God. And then for us to introduce God, to bring God into that world through our efforts. This is the purpose of creation. This is what the Torah is saying in the beginning. This is what the Midrash is saying. This is what Rabbeinu B'chai is saying. But you only understand this once you study a little bit of Kabbalah and Chabad philosophy. You realize that what the Torah is saying, with the Spirit of God hovering over the waters, as the Midrash says, the Spirit of Mashiach, which is the purpose of creation, as Rabbeinu B'chai says, what does all of that mean? All of that means is that when God created the world at the beginning, God intended for the world to not recognize God and then to ultimately work itself there to that space. And that's the end game. So if God made that happen in the beginning, mission accomplished, but actually no mission accomplished because you don't have a lowly world that's a home for God. You just have a a lofty spiritual world. So the whole point is you need to create, God needed to create a lowly world. And then the lowly world, discover God. In other terms, let me say this in maybe different, some different language. God loves a good paradox. Right? To have a spiritual world that recognizes God, easy. Angels, easy. What God wanted is a lowly physical world to recognize God. That's cool. I've never seen that before, says God. That's kind of awesome. I'm not going to make it happen. You're going to make it happen. Right? The only thing God doesn't have is something he can't make. He can't make us on our own make a world, make a home for God. Are you with me on that? You with me on that, on that thing? Right. What can't God, what, what does God want? The one thing he can't have, the one thing he can't make. He can't make a world in which we on our own discover him. Because if he made that happen, then we wouldn't under this gut ram. If he makes, if he forces it, it's not us. The only way that happens is he lets go. So that's what's going on here. God created a world, a lowly, lowly, physical world, lowly in the sense that it by default doesn't recognize God and God says, now you find me. That's your job. You find me. I want, I want to see if from darkness can come light. That's going to give me pleasure. Why? Because it does. In the space of darkness, can you bring the light? That's the whole purpose of creation. From the beginning, that's the end game. And so what do we see? What we see here is something absolutely brilliant. And that is that the spiritual awareness of the world That marks the Messianic era is not some sort of additional feature or other side of the coin of the Messianic era but it's actually the key to what God intended initially what God intended initially is to create a world in which by default we don't recognize God and then to slowly slowly work our way toward a recognition of God and by doing so bring heaven down to earth and bring that light into the world. In other terms, we could call this a healing of our world. Instead of the world being disconnected from its truth, our job is to make it more connected with its truth, to bring our physical world in closer contact with its spiritual truth. That being that God is the creator, that God is powering everything which Details of which we're going to get into substance, some subsequent classes. But the point is that that's our job. and Our job is to create that spiritual healing. And that triggers the material, the physical healing as well. Which is how the two sides of the coin are really connected. Because when we can bridge the gap between lowly world and spiritual origin, when we bring the world in contact with its original purpose, with its truth, then the world is healed. Where does suffering come from? Where does jealousy? Where does violence? Where does hate? Where does hoarding resources? Where does that all come from? A world that's disconnected from its purpose. A world that doesn't recognize why it is. People that don't recognize why they are. A world that recognizes its purpose. A world at home with its creator, spiritually, is a world that is enjoying all of the material blessings that we spoke about last week, a world that cooperates with each other, even on a basic level, on a human level, where information is shared and collaborated, Uh, people collaborate with each other on research and other things. That spirit of collaboration, learning and teaching and working together, cooperation, is a direct byproduct of a recognition that there is a purpose of the world, and there is a spiritual reality, a higher truth that is at play. Whether or not an individual recognizes it, that what drives the physical progress and evolution is a spiritual progress and evolution which we will continue to unfold as the course rolls on over the next four sessions. I want to read a very important text which is the key to everything I just explained. Because it's one thing to hear me say it, it's another thing to read it inside. I'm going to share my screen with you. And I want you to pay attention, please, to a text that we quickly moved over, but I'm going to go back now to read. This is, in your books, page 62, text number 7. The Hebrew actually appears on that page. So we're going to have to go to page 63 to the English. Now, it's a long text. I will read it. And as you'll see now, This quote from Tanya is at the core of what we explain today in this class. Here we go. Now, in regard to God, the distinctions of higher and lower do not apply as God pervades all realms of existence equally. But the explanation of the matter is as follows in other words, why why is one realm called higher and why is one lower? This is the explanation. Before the world was created, God was exclusively and singularly one. And he pervaded the entire space in which he would later create the world. Insofar as God is concerned, it is still the same now. The change brought about by the divine act of creation relates only to those on the receiving end of the vitality and energy that God infuses into creation, which they receive via the many garments that conceal and obscure the divine radiance, As as it is written, for no human can see me and live. In other words, essentially God is everywhere, even right here, as he was before creation. The only difference being that we can't see God. That's the only distinction between before and after creation. B.C., before creation, God is visibly everywhere. A.C., after creation, we don't see God. We don't see God, although God is here. This is the concept known in Kabbalah of the hishtal shalut, the downward descent of the worlds, level after level by means of the multitude of garments that conceal the energy and vitality that emanate from God until this physical and materialistic world was created, which is the lowest in degree of which there is none lower in regard to the concealment of God's radiance. Why is this the lowest world? Because it is the most concealed of God's radiance. This is a world of doubled and redoubled darkness to the extent that it is un- that is full of unholiness, namely elements that actually oppose God, declaring, I am, and there is nothing else besides me. Clearly, the purpose of the hishtal shlut, of the descent of the worlds, level after level, is not for the sake of the higher spiritual worlds, as they constitute a descent from the radiance of the divine presence. Rather, the ultimate purpose of creation is this lowest world. For, and this is the key paragraph, such was God's desire that he should derive satisfaction from the paradox. When the forces opposing godliness are overcome And when darkness is transformed into light, the result is that the infinite radiance of God is revealed within this physical world, the place of darkness and the opposing forces with the advantage of the light that comes from the darkness with an even greater intensity than its revelation in the higher worlds. Essentially, what God wants, there's a lot of information here that we can't touch on, more than what we discussed, but the basic gist of it is what I said before, and that is that what was the original kavanah, the original intent or the purpose of creation? Mashiach. What is Mashiach? God's reality is perceived by us. Not by the angels. They already got it. They're higher worlds. They're already by default aware of it. They didn't work on it. But it's what's the purpose of creation that even in a lowly world, a world that by default is shrouded in darkness by God's own design. God puts up a mechitza. God puts up a curtain between creator and creation. And then God says, catch me if you can. See if you can find me. And if you do and when you do, that's going to be the ultimate pleasure. That's what Mashiach is when the world is saturated with divine awareness like the higher worlds by default, but this is born of our own efforts. And that makes it sweeter and that makes it brighter. Sweeter, the satisfaction of effort, and brighter because of the aforementioned abundance of light that comes through the transformation of darkness to light, and even greater light is born of that journey. And this, my friends, as I said before, is the purpose of existence, why Mashiach, the Messianic era, is the culmination of everything, because it represents the spiritual wokeness, the spiritual awareness, right, of the whole world, as we discussed at the beginning of the class. And this is also the connection between this week's understanding and last week's. As I said before, a world in which everything seems to be run by the rules of the jungle. Everything goes, anything goes, and I'm in it for number one. And if you get in my way, I'll run you over. And it's a world filled with hate and jealousy and war and strife and hoarding of resources. And why would I even think to try to create a better life for someone that doesn't have goodness? Let them figure it out. Each man or woman for himself but in a world that is connected with its spiritual purpose, in a world that knows its creator, that recognizes the beauty of spirituality, that world is a sharing world. That world is a good world. And so what we've discovered tonight is not that the messianic era is comprised of two sides of a coin, physical blessings and spiritual um, awareness, but more than that, it's the spiritual awareness that is the key the essence, and the catalyst for that physical change. And if you're wondering, are you telling me that everything we said last week with the acceleration of the physical material blessings is due to an acceleration of spiritual um, awareness? I'm going to tell you yes. And if you're going to tell me, well, where do we see that? I'll tell you. We have another four lessons. So let's, let's explore. But tonight, if we had to summarize it in one line, it is this. The greatest material abundance comes through a recognition of the greatest spiritual truth. And so, my friends, let us open our eyes and recognize what's really driving this beautiful world of ours. And as we do so, and as we become more connected with our source, we will also become more connected with everything that our source has created, including our brothers, sisters, neighbors, friends, strangers, and fellow world Mates, if that's a phrase that we can coin tonight. Thank you very much for joining me tonight for lesson two of This Can Happen. We are taking a positive look at the future and recognizing the power that we have in our hands. Mashiach is an essential part of Judaism. And this is what it means on a spiritual level. Next week, our topic is superhuman versus superhumans. How do we make this world into a home For God, How exactly do we realize the spiritual potential in ourselves and the world at large? Tonight we said that that is what we're destined to do. But how exactly does that process unfold? How do we break through that curtain that obscures the true reality and let the divine light flood in? Join me next week as we explore the potency of our actions to change the world for good. That's all next week. I look forward, same bat time, same bat channel. Thank you for joining me tonight. I want to wish you a Laila Tov, and I encourage you to stay on for more discussion and for some announcements. Thank you. Baruch. Thank you, thank you. That formally concludes the class, but a few quick announcements. Number one, this Thursday night, we are having a very special Lag Baomer event. Now, Lag Baomer is a day of Jewish mysticism, the day of the passing of Rabbi Shum bar Yochai, the author of the Zohar, the primary work of Kabbalah. So, thank you, Sarah. Thank you, thank you. So, um, so um, join me Thursday night. We have a Zoom, a live Zoom event. We're going to join up with a community in Montreal, Canada, to have a live, dual city, dual country, no passport required, Fabrengen, for for it on, with live musical accompaniment. It's going to be an evening of song, insight, inspiration, a bunch of A's. Like, eh? Well, no, it's like Quebec. It's more like French-Canadian. Whatever. I'll let you join, and we'll find out. Atlanta meets Montreal Thursday night. If you're wondering how do you join, stay tuned for an email going out tomorrow and Facebook information going out. If you need the information, um, text me, WhatsApp me, call me, or email me, and I'll give you the information. That's happening this Thursday night. Don't forget, next Monday night, a week from last night, from Auschwitz to the IDF with label mangel a celebrated IDF veteran. His journey from safe Midwest life in America to the front lines in Israel defending his homeland, inspired by his grandfather's incredible story of survival. Join us Monday night for a story that will truly inspire you. Three generations of Jewish heroes. We just announced today, next announcement, we just announced today the launch of our Jewish summer cinema. If you like movies... Jewish film, Jewish food, outdoor entertainment, a good time, friends, and just great fun. Join us May 23rd, 30th, and June 6th for Jewish Summer Cinema right here at Chabad on the Beltline near Pond City Market, outdoors on our huge brand-new screen. It's going to be incredible. Check out more information. We have also a Hebrew reading course coming up and a Talmud course coming up. Too much stuff to mention. I thank you for joining, and I'm here to answer any questions. Again, any information and all information, inTownJewishAcademy.org. I also have to mention one more thing. I'm sorry, one more thing. There's a Torah event sponsored by Congregation Ariel from Dunwoody. Um, Jay, who's on with us, is, uh, is, uh, is one of the driving forces behind this beautiful effort to bring Torah learning to the entire city. Rabbis representing all congregations around Atlanta are going to be participating, including myself. It is, the date is the 12th and 13th of May. Is that correct? Do I have the dates right, Jay? Yes? Where is Jay? All right, we lost Jay. Um, I believe it's May 12th and 13th on Zoom. 24 hours of learning in a row, straight. So join us for that. It's going to be remarkable. And uh, again, stay tuned for all the information. All right, that's all the news that's fit to print. So now, mic is open. Jump in. Hold on, don't forget to unmute. Sylvia. Uh,
2: What time is Thursday's class?
0: Thursday is, good question. Thursday is going to be, hold on, our cross-country shindig is going to be on, wait, 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 wait for it. 8 p.m. Thursday night, 8 p.m.
2: Okay, thank you very much.
0: All right, yeah, stay tuned for the Zoom. We'll send out the Zoom via email, and then you can, uh, you can, you can enjoy it. It'll, it'll be a lot of fun. Music and inspiration, stories, songs, all that stuff. Good. Pleasure. All right, any other questions, comments, clarifications? Ray, jump tomorrow,
2: in. Tomorrow, outdoors?
0: Yes, Daily Power, Parsha, outdoors, 12 noon, yes. With lunch from Spicy. Bye, Jerry. Yes, Richard. Uh,
3: question about uh, the timeline from Mashiach. Uh, what is, what is the, uh, the truth or the, the theory behind 6,000 years?
0: Stay, stay tuned. We'll, we'll explore it in one of our lessons. That's a great question. Is the year 6,000 the magical year when going to happen? Where does that come from? Is there any validity to that? What's going on with timeline? Excellent questions. We're going to have that. We'll, we'll explore it in one of our lessons. So let's, let's do it. Let's do it properly. But good question. Yeah. Basically, Mashiach is coming in the year. When? <laughs> he first. I just said it. You didn't hear me? Mashiach is coming in the year. He's doing that over Oh, I'm sorry. My, my mic keeps on muting out. That's so awkward. <laughs> oh, well. You'll have to come back to the other lessons to, uh, to get the. <laughs> oh man, I'm here all week, guys. All right, good. Good, good, good. Um, questions, comments? It's really great to see you guys Mom, Ray, Susan, Richard, Ronnie, Adina Malka, Vlad, Sandrine, Marita, Lisa, Augusta, Mariana, Jody, Lisa, Eve. Jay is back. Good to see you. Jay, we were wondering the date. Is it May 12th and 13th? Do I have that right? I'm sorry. I disconnected. Yes. May 12th and
3: 13th, noon to midnight. I'm sorry. Love it. I hit the wrong, hit the wrong button. Oy vey.
0: I do that all the time. Don't worry. Trust me. I was, I was even doing that before. I was trying to tell everybody when Mashiach is coming. Right. I was, somebody asked for the year. So I said Mashiach is coming in the year... <laughs> Yeah. So that awkward mute button keeps on getting in the way. It's like so it's so unfortunate. It's I'm embarrassed, First, yes, I'm embarrassed No, 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 don't be, don't be. All right, it's good. Going to
3: be a fantastic event. I'm gonna to have Torah all over. Uh, Rabbi New,
0: Rabbi Minkowitz, you're gonna be there, Rabbi Friedman, it's gonna be fantastic. Everybody, everybody, everyone you wanna hear. All 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 in order to support Torah learning and uh, and and just spread the beautiful light of Torah in preparation for Shavuot, the holiday of the giving of the Torah. So what better way to Yeah, Baruch Hashem. Beautiful. Jay, thanks for all that you do and thanks all of you for being here and for studying together and uh, going deeper. Tonight was definitely one of the deeper classes that we've done and I thank you for sticking with me for the journey. Looking forward to seeing you next week. Lila Tov, we'll see you guys. Take care. Lots of blessings. Take care. Come <laughs> on.